0: It's definitely not just the absence of disease. It is how we feel mentally. It's our outlook. Do we feel optimistic? Do we feel happy? And that's sort of a diffuse feeling. And I think a big part of it is, do we feel empowered? Do we feel like we have it within our control to influence what's going to happen to
1: us? That is Dr. Robin Chutkin a leading gastroenterologist and four-time author on the microbiome, on what it means to be well. And this is Are You Ready? with Joanne Molinaro. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Are You Ready? with Joanne Molinaro. Last week, we talked about getting back on the healthy habit train, As I mentioned then, less than three out of 100 Americans have managed to master the following four healthy habits, eating a healthy diet, maintaining a healthy body composition, avoiding cigarettes, and getting regular exercise. In fact, one out of 10 Americans don't do any of these things at all. This week, I'd like to introduce you to someone who might be able to help with that, the veritable queen of gut, Dr. Robin Chutkin. Author of four books on the microbiome, including my personal favorite, The Microbiome Solution, Dr. Chutkin was once shortlisted as a candidate for the U.S. Surgeon General's Office, a graduate of Yale and Columbia College with more than three decades as one of the country's leading gastroenterologists and a teaching stint at Georgetown University to boot. Dr. Chutkin certainly has the bona fides to right the ship when it comes to our nation's health. I first became acquainted with Dr. Chutkin's work in 2016, shortly after adopting a plant-based diet. As someone who cut out meat largely for health reasons, I was devouring all sorts of literature, podcasts, and YouTube videos on how to protect my body simply by watching what I ate. I listened to Dr. Chuckin's book, The Microbiome Solution, in tandem with training for my very first half marathon. Her advice on challenging physicians who are maybe a little too quick on the draw when it comes to antibiotics or curbing the compulsion to clean, 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 or adding even more beans to my already legume-filled plate was, in a word, inspiring. I've taken Dr. Chuckkin's advice to heart, and though I may bear the brunt of my family's you-stink-Joanne jokes, <laughs> I stop showering every single day, since 2018, I've only gotten sick once, and that was at the very tail end of the pandemic, when I finally capitulated to corona. So, without further ado, I invite you to put your earphones on and tune in to this absolutely captivating discussion with the inimitable Robin Chutkin.
0: so much for coming. I will tell you, no pressure, James Baird Award winning <laughs> chef in my house. I am
1: not no a chef. <laughs> I am like yourself, just home taught and wanted to be a little bit more in control of the food that I was putting into my body. And it, at that time, that meant that I had to do a lot of the cooking, which I'm sure you're very familiar with.
0: Well, I think you're doing an amazing job. Oh, Thank
1: it. you. I wanted to start our podcast episode with a question. And I always like you know my background is in law and when clients email me I know that they have like five minutes less maybe maybe one minute to read through my email so I always start my email with a recommendation then with the reasoning for the recommendation and then I repeat the recommendation at the very end just to make sure that that's the last thing that they have in their minds if they make it to the end of the email so let's pretend that this is the end of the podcast episode if there's one thing Thing you want our listeners To take away from our chat today What would that be? It's that what you eat is a most Important determinant of your health So you have to pay attention to it I think that's a really perfect way To start and end this episode What informs That sort of recommendation? Well you know Michael Pollan actually said it really well in his seven words
0: on his amazing book, In Defense of Food. So eat food, not too much, mostly plants. But where people have trouble is the first few words, which is eat food. Mm. And that's the part that's getting really murky. And what's really interesting and terrifying is that as the food becomes more compromised, for want of a better word we're seeing such devastation in the GI tract. And when I'm seeing, I don't mean just with symptoms, but literally, physically, we're seeing inflammation, we're seeing autoimmune conditions. So we're tracking as the food becomes more edible food, like substances as opposed to actual food, we're starting to see all these conditions in the GI tract. And while it's hard to draw a straight line from what people are eating to what we're seeing, there's pretty irrefutable evidence at this point that things like the emulsifiers in the food, the ultra-processed food, is not just causing heart disease and creating dementia increasing our mortality, but it's causing a lot of distress in the GI tract. And so the longer I practice medicine, and I, as I mentioned to you earlier, I finished medical school 32 years ago. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. It's kind of uh,
1: sobering to consider that. <laughs> Three decades of expertise at this table right now. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it, as opposed to you're
0: how old? But- the diseases have really changed as the food has changed. You know, we're not seeing like the regular stuff. We're seeing all these really unusual symptoms and disease processes as a result of the compromise of the gut lining and the compromise of the gut microbiome and, and all the rest. And so the longer I practice medicine, the more convinced I am that really this sort of foundation of health and particularly gut health is really simply, we have to eat better. We have to make sure we're eating actual real food, not a product from a factory. Not too much is sage advice, and of course, mostly plants.
1: Well, I love what you said at the very beginning, which is that the idea of food itself is getting a little complicated. And I think that a lot of us take that sort of for granted. Well, whatever we're putting into our mouths and quote, feeding ourselves with, isn't that by definition food? Why has the definition of of food become so complicated?
0: Yeah, it's actually a really thought provoking question. And as the world's population gets older, it gets larger, people would say there's a lot of elitism involved with mm. saying, you know, you have to eat only this kind of food, et cetera. But that would be fine if we were just talking about gradations of actual food and organic versus not organic, et cetera. But we're talking about chemical food like substances that are making us sick. And that doesn't meet any criteria of food. A food is supposed to be something that nourishes us. It feeds us and it nourishes us. And a lot of the things people are eating are having quite the opposite effect. So it is edible. And and actually, whether it's really edible or not is debatable, right? Mm. I mean, yes, you can ingest it. But the fact that people are getting really sick from a lot of the stuff they're eating,
1: to me, means that this is not food in any real sense of the term. I think that there are some people who would say, well, if there are calories in it, and if it allows me to function throughout the day, if it lets me go from point A to point B, I don't really care if it's processed. I don't really care if it's frankenfood, as you call it in some of your books. It gets me the calories that I need. I don't need to be that picky. Are they being a little bit too casual about the benefits of simply providing calories as opposed to some of the costs that are associated with that? Yeah, I think people are poorly informed and the medical community
0: is poorly informed by and large also. So I treat people with chronic autoimmune diseases, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, and I hear... Over and over again from my inflammatory bowel disease patients that 's how those two diseases are categorized, I hear over and over from patients, "Oh, my doctor told me it doesn 't matter what I eat mm. you know i'm taking i 'm on the medication so it doesn't really doesn 't matter what I eat and I think that is still sort of the prevailing advice that a lot of physicians, certainly not all, but that a lot of physicians are giving people, and particularly when it comes to gut health, because for something like diabetes, I think most doctors would advise patients about the amount of processed carbohydrates, refined sugar. Unfortunately, they're not necessarily advising them about the amount of meat products, animal products they're eating, but there's some basic guidelines that they're giving people. But when it comes to gut health, which when you think about it, is the most intuitive idea of a link between what you eat and what's going on in your gut. I mean, I've had gastroenterologists say to me, so you mean to tell me that you think there's a connection between the food people are eating and what's going on in their gut. And right. I'm like, trying to not <laughs> stifle a lot of like- a Novel thought. Yes, <laughs> I am, that's precisely what I'm saying. So I think when it comes to gut health, these concepts and these sort of cause and effect equations that we're seeing are not as well practiced. In the, in the gastroenterology community, and we're still very reliant on medications, on
1: pharmaceuticals, etc., and less on food. So I definitely want to talk about sort of the lack of education or the unwillingness to be open to nutrition as a source of medicine, if you will, in the medical field. But I think that before we do that, I wanted to just kind of lay the groundwork of your expertise, what your background is. You've talked about the gut and the GI. You're a gastroenterologist right?
0: Yeah, you said that
1: so well. Oh, did I? <laughs> yes. <you laughs> okay, did. I didn't know there was a wrong way to say it. But maybe if you could just define what that even means, because I think there are a lot of people who hear that word a lot. I certainly have heard that word a lot. I hear a lot about the microbiome, gut health, leaky gut, all of these things. And then I only have the vaguest notion of what any of these things really mean. So if we could just again, lay the groundwork with what does a gastroenterologist actually
0: do? Sure. So in terms of the training, we all go to medical school and then everybody does an internship. And then your residency for gastroenterologists, we do residences in internal medicine. So that's usually another couple of years after the internship. And then after the residency in internal medicine, gastroenterology is considered a subspecialty. So the specialty is, in inter- is internal medicine and the subspecialty of internal medicine is gastroenterology. And that's Typically another three years of training, sometimes longer if you're doing a sub-sub specialty, but typically it's another three years of training. And during that time, you're learning about diseases of the gastrointestinal tract, which really it starts in the mouth, mm. the esophagus, the stomach, the small intestine, three parts, duodenum, jejunum, and ileum. I always remembered it in medical school as dogs jump in, ah. DGI, <laughs> a DJ, <DGI>. very helpful, <laughs> the small intestine and then the large intestine, the colon, and then all the way out through the rectum and anus. But we also claim the liver as one of our organs, and the gallbladder, and the pancreas. So gastroenterologists take care of diseases of the digestive tract, and during those three years of fellowship of subspecialty training, you're learning about those diseases, and then you're also doing procedures. And the procedures are upper endoscopy, where we're putting a flexible fibrotic tube through the mouth, down the esophagus, into the stomach and the small intestine, and colonoscopy, where or we're going up the other end. And gastroenterologists spend a lot of time doing procedures. So I myself have probably done somewhere north of 16,000 procedures. Wow. So it's a lot of insights mm-hmm. that we've looked at. So it's a combination of the procedures plus the diseases. And gastroenterologists are really well trained at taking care of these GI diseases, so whether you have something like hepatitis, viral hepatitis, or autoimmune hepatitis, or you have diverticulosis or colitis or ulcers in the stomach, I think what is lacking a bit in the training is the idea of wellness, of digestive wellness. So how do you help somebody to be healthy and avoid one of these disease states? And clearly, diet plays a huge role in that. And that's where I think we fall down a little bit. On so, the
1: job. that's where. I- I find a little bit disturbing because what you just described to me are all the body parts that come into contact first with the foods that we're putting into our our mouth, our throat, our esophagus goes down the the little track inside your, your body to your gut and out the other side, right? So these are all the parts of your body that come into direct contact with the foods, whether they're the frankenfoods or the real foods or some combination thereof. I would imagine that In order to know how to treat these illnesses, wouldn't it make sense then to have at least a robust course or curriculum on nutrition and the foods that we're putting into our body? You would think. (laughs) Yeah. So is that not happening? No, that's really not happening. That's not the case.
0: And the focus really is on diagnosing disease and then figuring out which pharmaceutical Mm. remedy to apply. So the big question that we're really taught to answer in our training is what? What is this? Is it Crohn's or is it ulcerative colitis? Is it an ulcer caused by a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug or an ulcer caused by bacteria, Helicobacter pylori? But we're not really encouraged to ask the question, why? Well, why does this person have inflammation in their gut? Why is, has half of their liver tissue been replaced by fat? Why do they have diverticulosis in the colon? So it's really the focus is on diagnosis and treatment and not on that, this sort of bigger philosophical question in, in some ways of why. But one of the things when you were talking about the food being in contact with the gut made me think about one of these concepts that is so basic, but I think really overlooked. And I have to admit that even as a practicing gastroenterologist for decades, I hadn't really thought about this. And this is that when something is in your GI tract, it's not inside your body. Oh, it's that's in this right. Hollow tunnel. Yeah, That goes it's from the inner the tube mouth to <laughs> yeah. the anus. Yeah, right. And it's not inside your body. And for it to get inside your body, it has to pass through this selective membrane and get absorbed in. And so, the gut plays this incredibly important defensive role for deciding what gets in to your body. Literally, what's going to get? What's going to? What are your heart and lungs and other innards going to see? and what's gonna get excreted out to protect you. And so it is very much a digestive organ, as you said, but it's also one of our most important defensive organs. And of course the immune system is right on the other side of the gut lining. And I think it's really important for people to understand that function Mm. because then you start to see, well, it's not just giving me calories and getting me from A to B, but it's also defending me against infection, against autoimmune
1: disease, against all kinds of things. So you talk about how at least when you were in training, and presumably still today, there isn't a lot of time devoted to nutritional education in medical schools for gastroenterologists, and from what I understand, most medical professionals, period. What was it that prompted you then to personally undertake that philosophical question of what even is food? Why am I not learning about this in medical school? How am I gonna actually learn about this to treat my patients? I was, like most doctors, busily diagnosing
0: and prescribing and thinking, this is great. We have all these drugs to treat this stuff. And it is great. Let me say that, that we do have all these drugs, but we need to be judicious about how we use them. And... I started to get interested when I joined the faculty at Georgetown in 97. Shockingly, they had not had a woman on the faculty in gastroenterology. A and lot of gaps there then. A few <laughs> gaps. And the, st- the statistic still is that the majority of women seeking care from a gastroenterologist are female, but the vast majority of the doctors are male. And there have been a lot of studies showing that people often prefer a gender-concordant physician. It's not always the case, but... Some women, when they are talking about their smelly gas, would prefer to talk to another woman, just like OBGYNs. And so what I found when I joined the faculty was, that was in demand. And mm. it, was, it was nice. I mean, I think I'm a really good doctor, but even before anybody knew if I was a good doctor, it was like, oh, you have a woman on faculty. We want to come and, and see a woman. And I was getting asked questions that I didn't have the answers to. Like, why do I have Crohn's? Or what can I do to treat my heartburn besides take this acid blocker? And so I set out on a little bit of a quest to find out answers. And some of it involved trying different diets. I've been on every wacky low-carb diet out there. Don't recommend any of them. Really terrible for the gut and for your metabolism and your heart, etc. But I started experimenting. On yourself? On myself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then making little recommendations to patients. But what really completely... Changed my practice of medicine was my experience when my daughter was born. Mm -hmm. And that was now almost 19 years ago. And I was advanced maternal age because (laughs) I was 39, but I was really healthy and ended up with a C-section. And I had no idea at the time, the difference between a baby that's born vaginally and a C-section baby. I just thought, okay, I'm having a C-section. Well, can we be able to go running as soon after birth as I, as mm-hmm. I thought I would. So convenient. <laughs> so convenient. And that's actually, I mean, while a lot of C-sections are done for medical indications for the safety of the baby and the mother, it's also clear that many of them are done for convenience and for commerce. And the numbers are shockingly high now. Depending on what study you read, it's one in three, one in four births being done by C-section. So as the baby passes through the birth canal and comes out through the vagina, the baby's head turns posteriorly to face the tush, that area between the vagina and the rectum that we call the perineum. And that's an area that's rich, as you can imagine, Mm -hmm. with lots of bacteria. And the baby's head, as it crowns, turns that way naturally so that the baby can become colonized with the mother's healthy microbes. And C-section babies miss out on that critical moment And as a result, instead of being colonized with the mother's healthy microbiome, they're colonized with hospital-acquired staphylococcus, which is as bad as it sounds. But that goes on, that that difference goes on to create some really important health distinctions. So C-section babies have higher rates of autoimmune diseases, higher rates of asthma, higher rates of allergies, and higher rates of obesity as a result of missing out on that critical moment and then Breastfeeding also plays a critical role in developing the baby's microbiome. There's trillions of organisms that live in our gut and are critical for not just our digestive health, but overall health. And my daughter, Sydney, was born via C-section. My breast milk dried up after a few weeks because of a lot of the antibiotics I'd been given. She was given antibiotics at birth. Oh, dear. Because I had the flu and they weren't sure what was going on. I mean, all things, nothing that I can really fault anybody for and, and... Quite the contrary, actually. I felt like, oh, they're being so proactive and putting her in the neonatal ICU and giving her antibiotics. This is great. You know, this sort of just-in-case type approach. But this this series of events of being a C-section baby and minimal breast milk and antibiotics at birth and lots of antibiotics in her first two years really set a series of events into motion of her being a really sick child. Mm. She was hospitalized for a rotavirus infection. She... I counted it, and I forget whether it's 20, 22, or 24, but somewhere north of 20 rounds of antibiotics before she was two. Are you serious? She was constantly either about to get a cold, had a cold, or recovering from a cold. And you didn't think there was anything? Well, I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a gastroenterologist. I I didn't, you know, I'd never had a baby before. But Mm -hmm. I remember asking friends, like, is your baby sick? Has your baby been on antibiotics? And they were like, not really. And so I started to realize that we were moving in the wrong direction. And I had to just move in a different direction. And I always like to remind people that I'm a physician and I had additional knowledge that made it possible for me to say, we're not going to go to the pediatrician. We're going to ride this one out and we're going to, get out of the cycle of endless antibiotics. But at the time, I mean, it doesn't seem like that long ago, 19 years ago, but we know so much more now than we did then. Back then, it was sort of a hunch. Now we have data. We have a large meta-analysis of over 17,000 patients showing that, early antibiotics in childhood and frequent antibiotics like Sydney had are clearly associated with autoimmune diseases like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, tremendously increase the risk of these diseases. Mm. And we know that early antibiotics are associated with cognitive issues in kids. So back then it was a hunch because I treated patients with autoimmune diseases and so many of them described a similar history of frequent antibiotics. And There are definitely kids out there who need antibiotics, but so often we're treating a viral infection, we're treating a self-limited infection that's going to get better on its own,
1: and we're treating something that doesn't need antibiotics. If somebody had told you, like your OBGYN had told you, hey... C section is an option but I want you to know that babies born of C section are x times more likely to be gluten intolerant have allergies have autoimmune issues be subject to all sorts of other health metabolism obesity issues do you think that would have at least caused you to hit the pause button or change your mind altogether about it if you could uh hell yes yeah,
0: yeah. no it was at, and I think OBGYNs didn't know. I mean, so many of them are still unaware. Fantastic doctors. In my second book, The Microbiome Solution, I have this whole birth plan. I was like, I'm going to write the birth plan I wish I had. And I get so much hate from my OBGYN colleagues. They're like, your damn birth plan. Patients come in and they're like, I don't want this. I don't want that. And we're just trying to do our job. But it really is talking about all the things I wish I had known. The fact that if you get something to sort of speed along labor that is going to increase the likelihood of a c-section if you get an epidural which you know I was very happy to get mine (laughs) that is going to increase the risk of a c-section and then what are the risks of a c-section so we're really just talking about people being better informed and I find that my patients are often better informed than my medical colleagues at this point in time where everybody has access to the information so people know a lot of this stuff now but people really didn't back
1: then yeah yeah well I guess what I don't understand and I don't mean to you know continue to throw your colleagues under the bus but I guess what I don't understand is why are doctors saying things like god dang your your birth plan my clients now want this and that and this and that I mean I can sort of understand you know if a, a client reads something on WebMD and says I know what I have before they even walk in the door but I mean Shouldn't patients be somewhat informed about their options and their choices? And if the OBGYNs are, for whatever reason, whether it's because they're uninformed, misinformed, or just don't give a crap, not going to provide their clients with this type of information, hey, this is an option, and it's my medical recommendation that you go through with this, but I want you to be aware of these studies that show that there is a significant you know, chance that your child may have an issue with allergies or whatever, if we go through the C-section. I don't understand what the mentality is that has doctors saying, just let me do my job. Well, I think it's competing interests.
0: So for an OB-GYN's perspective, they want to have a controlled delivery mm. and they want to make sure the baby comes out safely and there are no complications. And sometimes a vaginal delivery can be complicated. And maybe the labor's been going on a long time. Maybe there's a little bit of distress with the fetus. And so they make that decision. They are not thinking about your baby's microbiome. Mm. That is not on their radar. So they have one particular goal. And you, as the mother, have another goal, which you're thinking about your baby's long-term health. And so I think it's because medicine is very siloed. You go to see an ENT, and you're not feeling well, and you have a sinus infection. Maybe it's viral or it's something bacterial, but it's self-limited, but you're complaining. They want you to feel better. They want that sinus infection to go away, and they give you antibiotics. And they're not thinking about how the impact that's going to have on your microbiome long-term, et cetera. The, The nurse's health study, this was one that completely shocked me. This is on April 2021 that showed that middle-aged women, which she defined, I was glad to see, defined it as over 50, not over 40, (laughs) (laughs) middle-aged women who have taken cumulatively more than a couple months of antibiotics over a period of seven years had a decline cognitively mm. that is equivalent of aging the brain three or four years. Oh my gosh! I mean, this is—we I mean, know about antibiotics in the gut and the microbiome, but cognitive decline from antibiotics. So, but when your ENT prescribes that, they're only focused on your sinus symptoms getting better. And so, I think it is so much about the way we practice medicine, siloed into air, nose, and throat, digestive tract, you know. Vaginal birth versus C section. And we really don't consider the big picture and the implications these things have on other organs and on long term health. So I, I do find it is this idea of sort of competing, conflicting sometimes goals. Because most of these physicians, and certainly the ones I know, are really well meaning people. The pediatrician who prescribed my daughter these dozens of rounds of antibiotics was a wonderful, empathetic person who only wanted the best for my daughter, Mm -hmm. and unfortunately, I think just wasn't keeping track and realizing that she was on that many antibiotics and wasn't aware. Nobody really was aware at that time. time. Very few people were. So it's, you know, the thing that I really try and instill in my patients and anybody else who is around is you have to ask questions. You have to have that one eyebrow raised. Be very skeptical. Mm -hmm. You have to ask why. What would happen? I have a whole list of 10 questions to ask if you've been prescribed an antibiotic, you know, the most important one. Is this medication absolutely necessary? What would happen if I didn't take it? Could this resolve on its own without an antibiotic? What is the natural course of this illness? So if we look at a lot of the things that we commonly treat with antibiotics, like strep throat, that. The reason we treat strep throat with antibiotics is to prevent two very rare complications, kidney disease, post-strep and rheumatic heart fever, which are exceedingly rare. But the actual infection will resolve on its own. It will take a little bit longer. And so what I'm really pushing for is just give people the information. People are really smart. My patients are so well-informed, and they want to make the decision. So I think the shift we need to make in medicine is we need to sort of everybody needs to come out of their little silo so that we can think about the patient as a whole and we need to give people more choices.
1: Well, I think one of the things that I took away from your book, The Microbiome Solution, was exactly what you described. Actually, a little bit even more aggressive than what you described. I wouldn't just ask questions. Sometimes I would just push back and say, I really don't understand why I need to be taking this antibiotics for 14 days. It's like, I'm just having a tooth removed, (laughs) you know, something like that. But I think that a lot of people, and I do too, I still feel very uncomfortable pushing back to my doctor or even questioning them, for example, you know, they were like, well, we think you should take this vaccine and this vaccine and that vaccine. And I'm, you know, I'm generally about vaccines. I'll do it. But I pushed back and I said, well, what, what do they do? What are, what are you putting into my body? And what is the efficacy of this? Is it actually going to prevent what you say that it's going to prevent? Or are you just pumping my body full of stuff that I don't even know what it is? And she got a little snooty with me. And she, I think probably thought I was an anti-vaxxer by the end of the conversation. Cause I was like, yeah, I don't think so. I don't need two out of the three three of those things that you suggested. So what would you suggest to a regular old Joe like me? How do we effectively, you know, challenge our physicians without getting them defensive or thinking that we're kooky? Well, you have to challenge them because so much of
0: the way medicine is practiced is really guided by the pharmaceutical industry. And that's important Mm. to know. So the key opinion leaders in medicine are typically... On the payroll of the pharmaceutical companies, and they're the ones who are passing the information down the line. So a lot of medical education is sponsored, and that's uh, just the way it is. That's terrible. That is the way it is. So <laughs> it's not that that physician is, is individually pocketing money when they give a vaccine, but they have been influenced and guided and educated by people who are. So that's the first important thing to realize, and that's, that's just the fact of the matter, And the second thing is, you've got to engage, it has to be a dialogue. If you're seeing your doctor and it's a monologue, you got to find somebody else. Mm. So there has to be back and forth. And, you know, I, I always say if your doctor is just an asshole, then just fire him and get a new doctor. But if your doctor's uninformed or maybe not in complete agreement, that's fine. Then have a conversation, have a dialogue. And that's my goal with the books and everything else is to give people information to say, here's a list of questions. You don't necessarily have to ask all of them, but I want you to have it on hand and and think about asking them because these are the questions that I wish I had asked and Mm. I had had answers to, and whether it is about trying to prevent a C-section and do vaginal delivery instead, whether it's about whether you really need those antibiotics or that acid block or whatever it is. But, Joanne, so much of the conversation really is about trying to manage health with less pharmaceuticals and the reality is that all of these medications have side effects even prenatal vitamins have side effects oh wow so nothing mm-hmm. is really free mm-hmm. and if you think about if we think about something in gi like the commonest reason for our gastrointestinal emergencies of gastrointestinal bleeding gi bleeding somebody's all of a sudden starts pooping black stool tarry black stool that suggests that the bleeding is coming from up above and mixing in with the stool or red blood from below the commonest cause for acute blood loss from the GI tract, which is a medical emergency, is non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. It's drugs, it's Advil, the Anacin, the Aleve, the stuff that people take all the time. Oh my God, ibuprofen. You're a runner, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> pop ibuprofen all the time. I know that I cannot get past mile 20 of a marathon without ibuprofen <laughs> because of my bum knee, my <laughs> old knees. So something that seems as innocuous as that, you can get not just at any drug store, but at the gas station is the cause of some of the largest amount of morbidity and even mortality in the GI tract. When I first met my husband, he was an avid ibuprofen user. He was always taking stuff for sinus headaches. And I came back one day from the hospital, from being on call, and we'd had somebody with acute GI bleeding, developed an ulcer from ibuprofen that just happened to be in the wrong spot. It was over this blood vessel called the gastroduodenal artery, which is a very bad place to have an ulcer. And this was a young person who bled to death. We did our endoscopy. We were not able to stop the bleeding. They went to invasive radiology. They tried to do it. They went to the operating room, and they died in the operating room. From taking an ibuprofen? From fatal ulcer. And I came home, and I said to my husband, I'm like, you realize people die from taking this stuff? And he was like, okay. (laughs) Didn't know (laughs) he felt that strongly about it. But people don't realize it. You know, they think, okay, I have a little stomach upset, a little nausea, but but these drugs are powerful drugs. Now, they're powerfully helpful, too. You know, I'm nursing a injured ankle at the moment with multiple ruptured tendons, and let me tell you that those nonsteroids got me through making it back home from my trip. Mm. But we have to really understand the potential cost of these things, and this is what I'm not seeing. I'm seeing a lot of these drugs being, you know, prescribed frequently without really adequate information about the downside
1: or what else, like right you know, the rice, arrest, ice, compression, elevation, Mm -hmm. other things that you can do. Yeah. Well I mean it sounds like these drugs are being prescribed recklessly, not just kind of in this siloed fashion. And the and the reason I go back to this idea of a silo which I find troubling, particularly in regards to a discussion of the microbiome, which I actually do want you to define at some point. (laughs) But I mean, from what I understand from your book and from a lot of the other literature that I've read on this, the microbiome is humongous. I mean, it's composed of trillions of cells in your body. And some people have even said that we're basically just microbiomes wandering around on this planet here. And so of all the things that should be tying the silos together, If you truly want a whole 360 approach to health, wellness, nutrition, all of those things, shouldn't the microbiome be where that study begins? I mean, even with regard to COVID, of all the things that stuck out to me from the antiviral gut, your most recent book, it was this idea of, well, you know what, if you would just follow the clues in the microbiome, that's where all of these puzzle pieces finally start to fit together and we can actually build something as a defense against these types of pandemics, You know, whether it's this one or the one that we'll most certainly be seeing in our near future. So why is it that all doctors, shouldn't they at least have some education on the microbiome and its impact and, and what actually feeds it and what maybe turns it into something we don't want?
0: It takes a long time. It's a new science. It's an emerging Mm. science. But like you, I was really struck that University of Massachusetts Amherst article that showed that the essentially health of the microbiome was the most important predictor of outcome from COVID was just shocking. And then when you think about it, all these different diseases that also had high mortality, so having obesity, being diabetic, hypertensive, heart disease, these also are associated with an abnormal microbiome, so I kind of feel the way you do. Like, shouldn't this be medicine 101? Shouldn't we all be talking about this? But it's you know, medicine is a field that's slow to change. Mm-hmm. And when we think about silos, you're a lawyer, and you know that if you're a tax lawyer, like you're not helping somebody with. You're their not the first person on the phone, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When it's white <laughs> or, collar crime, or, <laughs> you know, a patent attorney, you're not going to help. So. I think lots of fields are, are siloed like that. Mm. But with medicine, it's particularly important because we're not talking about you know somebody's legal case or their financial situation. We're talking about their health. And obviously, it's all connected. Exactly, you know, It's very clear that that's the case. I do think that things are changing, but things are not changing from within the industry. Things are changing from really well-educated consumers. I like to think that medicine is changing from one concerned person at a time who's going to their doctor and having a conversation. And I do think it is important to try and not be overly defensive. Sometimes it's hard, but to say... And, and sometimes you have to really work hard to make sure they know I'm not challenging you and mm-hmm. you know, do all that ego stroke, but to say... I know you think that I should probably take this antibiotic, but I'm a little concerned because I have had seven courses of antibiotics over the last five years, and I am concerned about my microbiome, and so do you think it would be okay for me to just watch it? And I do a lot of counseling of this with my patients because a lot of the patients I see I'm seeing as a second opinion, and they have other doctors, and I'm sending them back. And so we're really strategizing. I'm like, okay, here's what you're going to say. You're going to start with doctor you've been so fantastic. Little Thank you so much. Little ego stroke mu- after right, all, <laughs> literally like three ego stroke and then move in for the kill, right? <laughs> like three stroke, kill. And, you know, and then they're like, well, should I bring the article? I'm like, no, no, don't bring the article. Yeah. But maybe you could leave it with a receptionist or, you know, like, <laughs> but don't hand it to them because chances are they haven't read it and people don't like that. Nobody likes being blindsided like that. But it is, you know, I was that doctor. I didn't know. I would roll my eyes when people would be like, well, what can I do? I'm like, take the damn medication, you know? I was that doctor who was uninformed, who thought that, you know, there was a pharmaceutical treatment and that was it, that there was no other way to treat these things. And my eyes were opened by these really incredibly generous patients who were like, I'm just going to explain to this doctor what's going on. Like where I am. Yeah. Yeah, And, you know, Joanne, it's almost this sort of don't ask, don't tell. Like we saw with with how gay people were treated in the military. Like, okay, I don't want to know. There's almost a little bit of that when people are doing, you know, basic things like eating a plant-based diet or mm-hmm. exercising is and again this is a huge generalization i think most doctors are very open minded and they want their patients to eat more vegetables and exercise but if they're really doing something that is seen as alternative to what the doctor is recommending frequently they don't mention it and i that when i first came to Georgetown in 1997, there was a conference in Italy, in Capri,
1: Italy. Mm. All
0: expenses paid. It was young investigators, and I just crept onto the Lucky wire. Lucky you. <laughs> you had to be less than 32, and I think I was like 30 or 31, and mm-hmm. I was like, I really want to go. And so I really wanted to go to this conference, and I had to come up with an abstract to submit that you know they would think was worthy of, of me coming. Provoking, yeah. All expense paid trip. And so I decided to do this really just sort of quick study in my clinic, a questionnaire about complementary and alternative medical practices. So this is 1996, 97. And so I did this questionnaire. These are patients who had Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, again, these autoimmune diseases. And I asked, I think it was five or six questions, like, are you using any complementary and alternative medicine therapies? Which ones? And it included basic things from meditation, massage to herbal supplements, etc. And I was really shocked that 80% of patients were using some complementary mm. alternative medicine technique. Now, nowadays, it's probably close to 100%, right? But this was a while ago. This is a few decades ago. What was really interesting is most of them we're not letting their doctor know. It was a don't ask, don't tell. Oh. And so, and and most of them were doing it in conjunction with whatever the doctor was prescribing. Some of them were doing it instead and not saying, and it was an anonymous questionnaire and it was really eye-opening. And it got me that trip to Capri. Oh, wow, wow. So that was really interesting to me because I thought, okay, people are paying out of pocket for this, whether it was you know acupuncture, whatever they were doing, they're paying out of pocket. Most of this stuff wasn't covered by insurance back then. So there must be a reason they're doing it. And the reason they're doing it is it must be helping. Mm-hmm. And, and again, now it's very different because many people see a conventional doctor and a functional medicine doctor. They're doing other things. And that is, I think that's probably more the norm than the exception now. And that is another way that medicine is changing, right? As we're seeing that blurring of the lines between the more allopathic
1: practitioners Mm. and others and i think that's a good thing no i definitely think it's a good thing and i also think it's important for people to realize that if if your doctor is of the eye-rolling variety then like you said you can determine that they're the asshole and and you need to fire them or you can try to continue engaging with them but at the end of the day you the patient shouldn't feel bad for eliciting the eye roll I think that's where a lot of people feel I, I'm, I feel the same way when I go to the mechanic I'm like I have no idea what's going on I don't want to ask questions you just tell me what to do even though I know you're probably doing 10 things that I don't need but I'm too scared to say anything and I think a lot of people feel that way but what I'm hearing from you is that they may be so undereducated when it comes to a lot of these things that are readily available to us now on the internet or elsewhere or in your books. I mean, that's one of the great things about your books when, when it comes to even figuring out what questions I'm supposed to ask, where are the things that I am supposed to be challenging, where are the things that maybe, okay, I'll listen, I think those are all important sort of headlines to take from your book or for any other resource. But I think that's where patients have to begin feeling empowered, feeling that they can take a little bit of agency over their health and their nutrition, even when it comes to treatment. I wanted to actually swing back to the fundamentals again. Earlier, you mentioned the microbiome, and I noticed that you actually sort of like rubbed your belly or like touched your your belly. And so I wanted to get like a good definition of the microbiome because as far as I know, it's not limited to the, the belly area. It's actually much broader than that. Is that right? Absolutely. It's everywhere. So we have
0: a microbiome on our skin, in our mouth, in our nose, everywhere. And what's really fascinating is that... So when we talk about the microbiome, we're not just talking about bacteria, we're talking about all these microscopic organisms. So mm-hmm. certainly bacteria, but also viruses, parasites, fungal organisms, little one cell protozoa, so all of them. The microbial community on the sort of round part of my cheek hair is completely different from what's in my nasolabial fold because the oxygen content, the moisture, etc. is different there. So even on your face you can move, you know, a couple of millimeters up or down and completely different bacteria. Oh. The microbial community in the outer or sort of upper part of our mouth is different from a little bit lower down or up under the cheek or so it really varies and again it's determined by things like oxygen content moisture etc is there saliva flowing in that area versus not one of the reasons we have morning breath although I know you don't have morning breath
1: you just wake up (laughs) of course not I'm perfume all over (laughs) fresh
0: all the time but part of the reason is because when we're sleeping our mouth is closed, most of us, and we're breathing through our mouth. And so the oxygen content in our mouth changes, and the bacteria change overnight. And so the different bacteria we wake up with in the morning are because we have now different microbes because our mouth has been closed and there's been less oxygen, which I just find fascinating. If you think about body odor and stress, for example, and how stress can, I don't. You know, we've had this conversation before of like, I can go 10 days and I don't smell bad. And people are like, you don't smell as good as you think you do. But I'll tell you, if I'm nervous, if I'm like big audience and I have to go out, I stink. And that's because the bacteria, you, you're you basically excreting a different kind of fluid in your sort of in your groin and your armpits and so on, and that's getting metabolized by bacteria to something that smells bad. That's different from just a regular sweat that's cooling you down. So it's really fascinating how quickly these communities can change. So as you said they 're all over fingertips covering our entire body, internal surfaces, but the majority of our microbiome is in our gastrointestinal right. tract, and the numbers vary dramatically depending on you know it 's all an estimate one hundred trillion a few hundred trillion, but a lot yes. more than a billion in just one drop of fluid in your colon wow. and as you go from mouth to anus from north to south in the GI tract, the amount of bacteria increase so the upper GI tract, the esophagus and stomach is certainly not sterile, but there's less bacteria. And part of what maintains that gradient is stomach acid because stomach acid creates a fairly inhospitable environment for Mm. bacteria. And that's intentional. And so when you take acid blocking drugs and block that stomach acid, you totally mess up that gradient, but normally as you go down from the esophagus stomach through the small intestine to the colon the amount of bacteria increase dramatically and that's because most of the bacteria in the colon, that's where they do their thing with fermenting fiber into short chain fatty acids and all of that so it's very very specialized as you go through, it's a long
1: tube and some of it looks the same but there's lots of different functions along the way. Mm. So the microbiome then, these are whether they're viruses or they're bacteria or some other kind of organism, these are things that are living inside and on your body. Is that yes, fair to absolutely. say? Wow, that's so cool. <laughs> it's like <laughs> a
0: beehive. Yeah. Think mm-hmm. of a hive, but the hive is animated by the bees. Ah, right? so you so, see them buzzing around absolutely. and breathing. Yeah. and Yeah, it's mm-hmm. ex- and, and we are not having any microbes. It's not compatible with life. We'd have to live, you know, like the boy in the bubble in a sterile environment because we can't interact in the world if we don't have a microbiome that is what informs our immune system synthesizes vitamins and hormones and affects neurotransmission to the brain etc so the microbiome
1: is really critical for all these different health functions So all of these little living sometimes I think of them as like little living critters inside my body or outside my body, inside my body. I mean, they're kind of all over, like you said, like a beehive. They are not just, you know, doing the job of protecting my body from, you know, for example, when we were talking about the food passing through the inner tube, right? That microbiome is deciding, well, what makes it through and what what stays outside, but it's also literally operating your organs. Like your organs are transmitting the things to your brain, you know, you know, whether it's telling your heart to do this or Absolutely. so that's so Guiding fascinating. It. There's mm.
0: a, a really clear example of that is one of the common GI bugs, GI bacteria in the gut is called Bacteroidetes fragilis, B-frag for mm. short. And it it plays sort of a like a lookout role. So it's along the, you know, lining of the gut there in the lumen. And when it sees a bad character like Ebola, for example, <laughs> it literally kicks the lining of the gut that releases something called interferons and that triggers a whole immune cascade of, you know, like, let's, let's get ready for battle. And so you start to see, well, if you don't have enough Bacteroides fragilis, then this isn't going to happen the way it should. So they're literally like there in this morass of trillions. I mean, think about all the stuff that comes in. We're ingesting bacteria and food particles and toxins and all of it. We're not, the food we're eating is not sterile. Mm. In fact, my food tends to have quite a bit of dirt on it. Mm -hmm. And these bacteria are sorting that out, and they're literally signaling the immune cells on the other side and saying, listen, you guys need to like snap to it because something really bad is in here. Or they're saying this is a really dangerous toxin and we need to get it out, in which case you're gonna have diarrhea, and they're gonna facilitate that. Or you're gonna vomit. They're facilitating you, you know, the expulsion of this from your body. So it really is quite remarkable because it is this whole other, as you said, army of critters. And because when you die, they die with you. Mm -hmm. They're really vested in your survival.
1: Yeah. One of the things that I loved about your book is that, I don't know if this is a direct quote, but you said, your body almost always has your back. And I often think of, these, the microbiome, all of these bacteria, these germs, if you will, that are taking my back and making sure that my body is not just functioning the way that it needs to, but that it will continue to function that way. It protects me and, and protects me from things like Ebola, for example. But I guess that's where I feel like there is a lot of work that remains to be done in educating not just doctors, but certainly consumers. I think that when I first read your book in 2016, this idea of good germs versus bad germs, good bacteria versus bad bacteria, and even good viruses versus bad viruses, that was novel and interesting. And it was something that I think people could get behind at that time. But now we've been through a global pandemic. And, and I just got on the plane, I got off the plane, and they're handing out those antibacterial white you know please wipe your hands before do you want one of these I always say no and, and and it was only because I read your book in 2016 and took very concrete steps to really change my life and habitually adopt a lot of the practices that you talk about in the microbiome solution but for people who are fairly new to this discussion of good bacteria versus bad bacteria is there really such a thing as a good germ or do I really want to just create that bubble so that I never have to no, come into contact no, with no, them no. there are the germs are essential.
0: And we know from David Strawn's work with the hygiene hypothesis, David Strawn was an epidemiologist at the London School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. And in the 1950s, he was tasked with figuring out why they were seeing these high rates of autoimmune diseases, et cetera, and figured out that Kids who were too clean, basically, who were bathing all the time, had these compromised immune systems that were then, they weren't, they hadn't been trained by enough dirt and they were putting them at risk for autoimmune diseases. And similarly, kids who hadn't been sick, the, the healthiest kids were the ones who were the less affluent kids in big families who were getting sneezed on, coughed on, who were, you know, getting the usual childhood illnesses because that was training their immune system. And we still see this division when we think about the hygiene hypothesis, we see high rates of autoimmune diseases in North America, Western Europe, et cetera, in countries that are highly sanitized. And we see much lower rates in Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, et cetera. But of course, as countries become more developed. And there is, I mean, there are wonderful things that come with being more developed, right? Sanitation, we don't have to worry about cholera from the water, et cetera. But then we start seeing really abundance of these sort of non-infectious autoimmune type diseases. And so we need these germs. They're really essential for a lot of things, but primarily for the development of our immune system. And autoimmune diseases, I mean, we have just seen skyrocketing rates. The latest numbers were one in four Americans, but I think it's higher now than that. But when you think about that, that's a startling high number of people. So we think about who you know who has eczema, psoriasis, diabetes, Parkinson's, Mm -hmm. lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, all of these things that are so overwhelmingly
1: common now. Well, it's also particularly concerning when again just coming off a global pandemic we know that these types of autoimmune disorders or illnesses subject people to greater risk to mortality to these types of illnesses whereas people who don't have them tend to kind of skate by without either getting sick at all or you know not getting sick very much what are the things that people can do to shore up their microbiome. Let's say let's say I am that kid that, you know, took a bunch of antibiotics when they were little because their mom didn't know any better. I, I dare say that there are probably a lot of moms who said, you know what, I'm just gonna give them this antibiotics even though I don't necessarily know what it's for because I hear that's what you're supposed to do, it'll get rid of the germs, right? What are we supposed to do in order to shore up that microbiome so that we're not, again, subjecting ourselves to higher risk of autoimmune disorders or even simply getting sick the next time something like this happens. It's really surprising to find out that
0: the more antibiotics you take, the more likely you are to get Mm -hmm. sick. Mm -hmm. But when you think about the microbes as the guardians of the immune system, then it makes sense, right? So we know from data with rotavirus and lots of other viral infections in kids that kids who have recently taken antibiotics are at increased risk for a viral infection. And you think, well, what's the connection? Because antibiotics don't treat viruses, but antibiotics kill bacteria, and bacteria protect you against viruses. So the advice that I would give people is, again, let me be clear. The pharmaceutical pharmaceutical industry has done wonderful things with coming up with a lot of these drugs that have been life-changing, life-saving for lots of people, but we have to be more judicious. So if you are somebody who wants to have a healthier microbiome, or you're a parent worried about your kid, judicious use of medication because a list is long it's not just antibiotics and acid blockers but it or is, ibuprofen <laughs> yes, It's ibuprofen it's antidepressants and it's you know it's a lot of things most drugs are going to have a potential wow. negative effect most of the commonly used ones so that's the first thing and then if you are on a biologic or an immunosuppressive drug like prednisone you have to be particularly careful and ask about that you know it's shocking how much of the time when you just say well do I really have to take this? They're like, no, you don't have to take it. You mm-hmm. know, it. So you have to ask about the drug. So the medicine cabinet is a big area where we have to pay attention, particularly with kids. Because with kids, their microbiome is still evolving up until around 18 or 21. So the effect of an antibiotic in a seven-year-old is very different of the effect of an antibiotic on a 70-year-old. Mm. And it's much more... Debilitating
1: and long lasting for the seven year old's microbiome. So, something we have to pay attention to. So, in addition to paying attention to the medicine cabinet in our bathroom, it sounds like uh, the other area that requires perhaps even more attention is the kitchen. What's in the pantry? What's in the refrigerator? I know that you talk a lot about in your book making sure to eat a plant fiber rich diet. But, you know, Coming off this conversation about antibiotics, what about all the antibiotics that are being pumped into our meat? Yeah, the food, I mean, is that also wreaking havoc on our
0: microbiome? 80% of the antibiotics sold in the US, as an estimate, are used in the food industry. And they're used, as you know, primarily to fatten animals. Mm -hmm. So avoiding eating animals, or certainly those fattened by those grown in a more, raised in a more industrial way, which is is the vast majority, majority mm -hmm. is one way to do that. The diet, once we're adults, and I would dare say even in kids, the diet is the most modifiable Mm. factor that affects the microbiome. And we know that from multiple studies. And my favorite one is the American Gut Project study from 2018, where they looked at thousands of patients from over 45 different countries and asked, what are the factors that are most strongly associated with a healthy microbiome. And it was the number of plants people ate per week 30 or more different plant foods per week fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, beans, herbs, spices, all of it. And we had fun earlier adding up, totting up the amounts of plants and mm. what we were eating, but it really makes a difference. So, variety is important. And it, it's less about what you might be eating that's not so great and more about what you're missing. So I'm a big advocate for really encouraging people. You've got to add in, I talk about the one, two, three rule, one vegetable at breakfast, two at lunch, three at dinner. Very convenient. <laughs> flip it and have a smoothie. And so people are like, well, what do you mean? Like, I can't eat a vegetable at breakfast. I'm like, just eat a carrot on your way out the door. Yeah. So really getting people to understand that you know a green powder or a supplement is not the same as actual food and it's not really doing anything for you the way the food is. So you've got to figure out how to get those plant foods in, those whole plant foods. And and again, we have very clear scientific evidence that in terms of how we can create a healthier microbiome. Of course, not taking antibiotics unnecessarily is a big part of it,
1: but just the everyday consistency of the plant fiber. Why is it that the plant fiber has such an enormous positive impact on the microbiome? Like it seems kind of random, like just eat more plant fiber.
0: (laughs) The, The fiber is metabolized, it's fermented by gut bacteria into something called a short-chain fatty acid. So that's what we consider a pr- postbiotic. So the prebiotic uh. the food, the bacteria eat, the probiotics are the bacteria, and the postbiotics are the metabolic byproducts. So plant fiber gets converted by the bacteria into these short-chain fatty acids. And short-chain fatty acids are food for the cells lining the colon, the colonocytes, but they also modulate the immune system. So the level of short-chain fatty acid is directly proportional to the health of the immune system. Ah, So the more fiber you eat. The more fiber you eat, the more short-chain fatty acids you have, the healthier your immune system. Wow, that's so simple. so simple. And, Joanne, (laughs) this is a problem. Like, I try to make it sexier and more scientific and more complex (laughs) than just, like, eat more plants at the end of the day.
1: Well, why are people so resistant
0: to that? I do not, you know, less than 5% of Americans meet the minimal, minimal requirement for beans and greens every day. I do not understand, I see these ads for the powders and the this and the that, and I understand convenience, but I'm like, why don't
1: people just eat some vegetables? Well, I mean, one of the things that you said in your book that I think is so fascinating, it talks about cravings, right? And I think a lot of people will simply say, cause I just don't like the way it tastes. I'm sorry, I don't like the way kale tastes. I don't like the way beans taste. I don't like the way broccoli tastes. It tastes gross to me. Certainly children will say that all the time, right? But what I found so interesting Interesting about your discussion of the microbiome is that the more you feed the good germs in your body, the more they start to influence what you actually crave. And one of the things that you know both Anthony and I took away from the first podcast you did with with Rich Roll was that the only inherent, innate craving that we have as human beings is for breast milk. Everything else is, as you say, sort of a modulated modified craving, if you will. So the idea is, well, if it's something that you created by habit or by eating the foods that you eat and feeding the microbiome what you fed it, then presumably it can also be sort of taken away. Uncreated. Exactly. Absolutely.
0: And you talked about this earlier when we were chatting over lunch about your desire for meat just not being there at all right you have zero craving zero desire because you haven't eaten it in several years and so I think about my dad who's 88 and has no sweet tooth at all and he's so lucky he grew up (laughs) on a sugar cane plantation there was no I mean there was sugar cane to eat which is sweet there were no sweets culturally grew up in a Hindu household dessert just really didn't exist so for the first, I don't know, you know, probably 15 years of his life, he never ate any sort of dessert or anything. I got into a bad habit during pandemic of like, okay, what's, you know, what's for pud? What's my sweet and a little chocolate every day? And it's amazing how that just continues to drive this desire. I mean, I don't think that eating a little dark chocolate every day is such a bad thing, <laughs> I just have to Thank say. Thank God. <laughs> but, but it really is something that the more you have, the more you want. And it really, as you said, particularly sugar, you're increasing that population of bacteria Mm. that are then driving you to consume
1: more of that substance. I think that's so crazy, for lack of a better word, that there are literally things inside of my body that are saying, oh, give us more sugar, give us more sugar. And then when you stop feeding them, then the other side starts to get more powerful. Give us more kale. (laughs) Yeah, give us
0: more green stuff. (laughs) Even the taste, you know, you have different taste buds on your tongue. You have umami and sweet and all of that. And that can be modified by the bacterial content in our mouth. So even how something tastes to us and whether it tastes sweet or not or savory. Oh, it's just
1: like a Coca-Cola, right? When you go from Coca-Cola to Diet Cola, you're like, I can never go back to regular Cola again. And then when you go from Diet Cola to just water, you can never go back to Diet Cola again. It's like this sort of, you're training your tongue to taste things, I guess, even more if you will. And so that something that tasted normal starts to taste disgustingly, cloyingly sweet at a certain point. I can certainly attest to just personally changing my cravings not just with meat I always thought that sugar was impossible like I I love sweet things I love donuts I'm my fob's daughter he loves donuts and you know to your point i just thought of this my father didn't grow up with donuts he you know grew up in south and north korea so he didn't have donuts right growing up it wasn't until he came to the united states that he developed this sort of addiction to donuts i mean he could literally go through a dozen donuts by himself in one sitting no problem if we don't watch him he will do that and i also love donuts and So for me, I always thought this, you know, low carb, low sugar or no refined sugar diet, it's never going to work for me. I love sugar too much. I crave it too much. And no one's going to make me believe that if I just stop eating it, all of a sudden it'll stop actually meaning anything to me. But lo and behold, I would cut it out usually before a marathon, you know, a couple months before marathon training, I just cut out all refined sugar. And within 10 days, I was like, fruit. Fruits enough for me. I, the idea of cake is a little bit disgusting to me. It's like way, way too sweet. Yeah, it's amazing how that changes. And with, with low carb diets, which we've
0: already established I'm not a fan of, mm. any diet that says you shouldn't have fruits or whole grains, not a great idea. But I will say that when people do these very restrictive low carb diets, it's one of the first things they notice is that their cravings diminish after a few days. And it's for the same reason you
1: said you cut those foods out, bacterial population decreases. Oh, and it sounds like it doesn't take too long. I mean, from what I understand, it takes roughly 30 days to train your microbiome to either uncrave or to crave the good things.
0: Yeah, it is about that, but it's actually even a lot faster in terms of seeing the microbial communities change. So we know from an article that was published in the journal Nature from around, I believe it was around 2014, and this was a study where they took nine volunteers, and they put them on the Atkins, you know, pork rinds and prosciutto diet. They rested them, then put them on whole foods, plant-based diet, jasmine rice, lentils, mango, instead of pork rinds. And they looked at the microbiome before, during, and after, and they found within about 30 hours of the food hitting the gut, things were changing. Oh, wow. They were seeing the lophilia, the bi-loving bacteria that are important for metabolizing animal protein drop dramatically. They were seeing the fecalobacteria prosnitziae, the ones that ferment a lot of plant fiber increase. So 30 hours. And I find that to be one of the most optimistic things in all of medicine. (laughs) I know. It's like, I can change my microbiome. in I mean, you're not going to like have a completely (laughs) brand new microbiome, but you can start to see... These differences, there's a very well-known study that was done between University of Pittsburgh and University of London where they took 20 black South Africans from rural South Africa and they took 20 black Americans from an urban area and they swapped diet for two weeks under very closely controlled circumstances. They didn't just say, oh, eat differently. And within two weeks, they saw markers for cancer dramatically change. The poor rural South Africans who were eating, a, you know, sorghum and millet and vegetables and were now eating fast food, their markers skyrocketed. And then the the black Americans from the urban area who are now eating the more plant based diet, theirs improved now. Two weeks is enough time to say whether you're getting colon cancer or not, but it was shocking that these markers of inflammation and cancer Mm -hmm. were so modifiable just through the diet. They didn't change environment because we know environment, rurality and being exposed to nature and animals and so on is also very good for the microbiome, but just the diet alone. So we have the American Gut Project study from 2018. We have that study. We have Paolo Leonetti, the pediatric gastroenterologist from Italy where he looked at babies in Burkina Faso and mm-hmm. babies in Italy and found that based on the very different diet, processed high fat, high sugar, high animal protein, on processed plants, huge differences in the microbiome. And the really fascinating thing about that study is neither group of kids were sick. We're talking about healthy kids, but the foundation of disease, We could see that foundation being laid down and it's through diet. And people say to me, well, you know, I see, a lot of times my patients who have autoimmune disease will say, you know, it's just not fair. I see these people and they're eating really crappy and they seem to be fine. And I'm like, yeah, they're not fine. Yeah, (laughs) Or they're fine now. Mm -hmm. But, and of course, there's always that outlier. There's always a little old Italian man who smoked three packs of Marlboros (laughs) a day and lived to be 104 (laughs) and had no lung disease, right? But we know that that is not the norm. We know that smoking is strongly associated with lung cancer. And we know that eating a high animal fat, high animal protein processed diet is strongly
1: associated with all kinds of health problems, not just in the gut, but everywhere else. I wanted to actually get to that because you've sort of hinted at your criticism of the the low-carb diet and... You know, it sounds to me that the problem with a low carb diet is that you're getting almost no fiber or very, very minimal plant fiber. I, I think everyone knows that there's no fiber in a hamburger. <laughs> and to the extent that you are, it's the the sad, wilty lettuce that you have put over the top of it and not the hamburger itself. There, there's probably no fiber in mac and cheese other than in the pasta. So when you're talking about a low fiber diet. That makes sense. If you if you say that adding more plant fiber to your diet means an increase in your body's ability to defend against illness and just overall health, that makes sense. But can you speak a little bit more specifically, you know, as a gastroenterologist and as someone who's looked at this, you know, down to the very microbiome, if you will, what does the gut of somebody who eats a low carb diet look like? And how is that in contrast to somebody who is eating a more plant forward diet?
0: Yeah, so there are other factors, too, to be clear. There are genetic factors Mm -hmm. from some of these diseases, other environmental factors that we're not always aware of, not just things like glyphosate, but other things in the environment that we haven't even identified. So it's not 100% food, but it's a lot of it. So, for example, in parts of the world, in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, for example, where they eat a high, unprocessed fiber diet, 70, 80, 90 grams of fiber as wow. opposed to you know the less than 20 that most Americans are getting. Not only do they have like gorgeous stools, but they don't have colon cancer. They don't have diverticulosis, they don't have inflammatory bowel disease. They don't have, so if we look at something like diverticulosis, which affects more than half of the population over 50, these potholes, these pockets in the colon that cause a lot of discomfort, bloating, constipation, bowel irregularity, gas, et cetera. Mm-hmm. We sort of normalize this because more than half of. I 100% agree with that. It, yeah. But it's not normal. And it is directly related to eating a diet that's too high in animal protein and fat and not high in enough plant fiber. And the colon has to push really hard to get out that small Western stool. You know, we, we don't have to, you don't have to, you know, tell all, but I just know you have some fantastic poops. Yeah. I know that. I feel I very that, proud that. of that. So your colon, you know, when you sit down to go, there's not, I'm sure, there's not a whole lot of straining and, you know, it, you sit down and things come out yeah. and, yep. you know, good things. And that is typical of somebody eating a high-fiber diet. And so all that pushing and straining and so on, There's slower transit when you're eating a high animal fat diet. And that means that, remember, stool is waste material. It's stuff that your body's trying Mm. to get rid of. That means that that stuff is in contact with the lining of your gut for much longer. And that itself is associated with an increased risk for certain conditions and an increased risk of malignancy, et cetera. That's slow transit. So, you know, we could eliminate a lot of these diseases or at least significantly reduce them if we change what we ate and we don't have to necessarily completely get rid of the animal protein. We just need to eat more plants.
1: Mm. I loved what you said earlier about how your focus isn't necessarily on cutting the things out, but actually just promoting the inclusion of things that are helpful like you know more plants more broccoli more greens more beans uh, more grains and, and things like that and the other thing that you say in your book that i really like is that you really can't tell what's going on in the microbiome just by looking at somebody so you could see somebody who's you know 26 years old looks thin looks fit you know may even run marathons and and do all of those things but on the inside their microbiome could be in rough shape and I think, you know, one of the things that I think is important to talk about is this idea of not necessarily judging a book by its cover and not necessarily judging health by its cover, because I think a lot of times we make all these snap judgments about, oh, well, this person looks thin or this person, you know, plays tennis every day and therefore they could not, get sick with covid or if they do get sick with covid, it's probably just a little flick on the wrist. But in your practice, has that been the case? I mean, is it always a situation where you can tell just by looking at somebody? Oh, yeah, this person's probably not going to get sick because they've got a beautiful microbiome and probably, you know, poop beautifully (laughs) every
0: day. I feel like I could have a better sense if I looked at what somebody ate. If somebody gave me a photo food journal of typically what they ate over a few weeks, I feel like that would be much more accurate
1: than just looking at them. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I do want to kind of expand that conversation a little bit more because one of the things you do talk about in your book is the role of the microbiome in obesity or, you know, people who struggle with their weight and their metabolism. And I know a lot of people have, you know, I think you actually called it, this is you know maybe a touchy subject, right? Because The idea is, again, you can't judge a book by its cover. You can't determine, you know, just because a person is thin that they're perfectly healthy. And, you know, conversely, some people have suggested well, if a person is obese, that they may have a perfect microbiome. But I think what I took away from the book is that there are literally physical issues related to obesity that make it a little bit more difficult, or in some cases, much more difficult to either avoid illnesses like COVID or to recover from them, particularly now that we're seeing so many instances of long COVID and and sort of this, you know, lingering effects of that. Can you talk to us a little bit about, in your practice, does what you just described, take a look at the food that they're eating, how does that sort of interact with, I guess, with issues related to obesity, weight, and even metabolism?
0: Well, the first thing I want to say is that you can have two people eating the exact same meal, same nutritional, macro, micronutrient content, and one is going to gain more weight than the other. Mm. We know that. And we know some of that is genetically determined. For example, most of the microbiome is not genetically determined, some microbes are inherited. And for example, there's a family called Kristen and that's associated more with leanness. But the majority of the microbiome is very much determined by things like where you live, what, how you're exposed to nature, the medications you've taken, and the food you've eaten. Right. So it's primarily your diet and environment. And we know that certain complements of microbes are better at extracting calories from the food. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to end up with a higher energy harvest. What that means is you're going to gain more weight versus others. But at the same time, it's a diet that determines that, in large part, that microbial composition. So it becomes a sort of catch-22, right? We eat a very starchy, you know, lots of processed food, refined sugar. You're going to end up with these microbes, which are probably going to be better at harvesting energy and make you more likely to gain weight. So it is, I mean, I, I definitely realize that it is, you know, over the years of taking care of people that is much more complicated than just calories in calories out for sure. And that some people can eat a lot and not gain weight as easily. And some people kind of seem to just look at food and gain weight for sure. But that being said, that is the major determinant still is what you're eating. So it's sort of like running. I am never gonna be a fast runner. I can run far, but I'm just not fast. And I could train a lot, and I could get a little bit faster, but somebody else, my daughter for example, can train much less than me and get a lot faster. And granted, she's a lot younger, but even people who are the same age. I have my friend who did her first marathon, I think it was my fourth. I remember telling her, Michelle, just try and finish. You know, it's 26.2 miles, that's a lot, and your goal should just be to finish. She did a sub four. Oh, I I did like a 428 (laughs) on that one. I was like, okay, (laughs) I think she's good. She's a fast runner. And I, I'm just never going to be as fast a runner as she is, but I can be faster. And so again, there's some people who it's just much easier for them to lose weight. And some people have a tremendous difficult time losing weight, but they can. So, you know, I think people feel very stuck and often they've been given, poor advice. They've been, you know, low carb diet or whatever, eat multiple meals. And at the end of the day, if you're trying to lose weight, generally eating lots more food is probably not the way to go. So there's so many different, you know, theories about metabolism and this and that, but we have to look at how much food we're eating and we have to look at what we're eating. And the food, the plant food is very nutritionally rich. It's surprising for most people to learn that per hundred calories, romaine lettuce has more iron than sirloin steak. It's just that 100 calories of sirloin steak is a little bit of steak, mm-hmm. and 100 calories of lettuce is a lot. But the food is very nutritionally rich—a plant food. But from a caloric point of view, you know, if you, a, a, a steak has so much more calories and fat than a salad, and so if you're trying to lose weight, it just doesn't make any sense that you would be eating a steak thinking that this is, I mean, you can induce ketosis and lose a lot of water weight and so on, but that's not really meaningful weight for most people and not something that's maintainable. So really just a little bit of common sense about what you're eating. You need to probably eat less, you need to eat more plants, things like that, less processed food. But there, there clearly are people who have advantages, if you will, mm. in terms of it's just easier for them. And that's that's true of many things. Some people can sing. Some people aren't so good. Another area where I'm lacking. So just as we think of some people being sort of naturally better at some of these things, some people are naturally better at losing weight. But most people with some training can get to be a better singer. I'm not sure I can. <laughs>
1: But I think that the flip side to that is, you know, putting weight to one side. Right. You know, and again, I understand that there are literally physical complications that arise from just being a larger size. Right. But let's put that aside. If you the empowering thing about this message again, as, as we discussed, is that you can literally change your microbiome in in a day and a half, based upon the choices that you make. Whether it is taking a carrot out, you know, as you're walking out the door to the office, whether it is replacing a hamburger with a black bean burger and a salad, you know, instead of eating French fries or, or whatever it is, these are the little things that you can do to make sort of astronomical changes inside of your microbiome. And
0: you don't have to, if you are struggling with being overweight or having obesity, you don't actually have to be skinny to be healthier. We know that just losing 10% of your body weight can make a tremendous difference. So we know that exercising, even if you're not losing weight, can make a tremendous difference. So it's not either or, you know, either you're skinny or, you know, you're just destined to be unhealthy. And so it's kind of the same thing of like, just eat a few more plants, try and lose a little bit of weight, get down to, you know, sort of that next level where you're not as at high risk for some of this morbidity and mortality. Because in addition to the microbial changes, when you think about the structure of the body, the ability to ventilate the lungs, the fact that the fatty tissue is immunologically active, These are all things that we have to, you know, we have to sort of reckon with when we're dealing with people who who are really struggling with their weight and making sure they're well informed about that.
1: Yeah, I think that that was sort of, you know... A lot of, again, so sort of, this is the hazard to educating yourself through the internet as you start reading all these blogs and you start reading all these articles. And, you know, I try to focus very much on peer reviewed studies, but every once in a while I'll log onto a blog of somebody who I don't know, who probably has no experience. And, you know, they'll say things like, well, basically, you know, how much you weigh and your body's ability to burn calories or use calories or store calories, it's either in your genes or it's in your microbiome and you're destined for whatever it is is too bad, too sad. There's not much you can do about it. And that's terribly disheartening to people. True. Yes. Just inaccurate. I mean, and that's kind of what I took away from this discussion of, well, this is how quickly you can change the insides of your body, the composition of that microbiome. And if that microbiome is literally operating all of the things that are happening in your body, then isn't that again, such an optimistic message that we are in so much control. We are in the driver's seat when we decide to eat this and not that or eat a little bit more of this in addition to that. And I think that's really powerful. The other sort of interesting thing that I have been seeing a lot more of, and I'd be interested in hearing your take on it, is the role that the microbiome plays in mental health. And, you know, I used to kind of write this off when people would comment, well, you know, what you eat determines how happy you are, or what you eat can, you know, cure your trauma. And I think, you know, people need to be a little bit careful when they start making these sort of broad statements about overcoming trauma and dealing with, you know, all sorts of things from people's past. But I do think, again... There's something very hopeful about this idea that, hey, I'm not saying that you, you know, eradicate your PTSD by eating more broccoli, but maybe there is something to be said for saying, hey, there's a silver lining here that appears when you start taking better care of yourself you know, from a nutritional standpoint that might not otherwise appear if you continue to eat in a way that prevents your body from even noticing it. All you have to do is watch a really sugared up four-year-old
0: to know (laughs) that there is a clear association between mood and what they're eating. And I love this field of nutritional psychiatry. Drew Ramsey, Dr. Drew Ramsey, who's a psychiatrist and just a, a lovely person, is one of the people working in this field. And, you know, again, it's not either or. I am a conventionally trained doctor, I wear a white coat, I have a prescription pad, and I have been known to whip it out Mm -hmm. and prescribe some serious drugs when people need it. But it's always on a platform of, let's look at your diet and lifestyle, right? And I think that's very much the way a lot of these folks in nutritional psychiatry are practicing. They're not saying, like, you know, antidepressant never or anti-anxiolytic, but they're saying, let's really take a really close look at how you're eating and how you're living your sleep, your habits, your exercise, because these things have a profound impact on your mood. And so let's get that as good as we can. And then if we need to do something else on top of that, we do, as opposed to just ignoring that and you know prescribing these drugs, which are often very poorly tolerated, lead to fatigue
1: and weight gain and all kinds of issues, not to mention problems in the microbiome. Of course. So one of the things that you had said earlier is that virtually every single pharmaceutical drug will have a potentially negative impact on the microbiome. I'm assuming that isn't limited to things like antibiotics and ibuprofen, but also include antidepressants, anti-anxiety medication. I mean, these are medications that I think people have grown to depend upon, are these things that we should again be giving a really close look at before we decide, yeah, this is something I'm going to start taking?
0: I think we need to, and particularly because for some of these drugs, the data is not much better than a placebo effect, right? So if it really is this life-altering thing that's going to make a dramatic change, but for some of the drugs where really clear what the drug is actually doing and I think for so long we just didn't have anything so people who are really depressed and really struggling it's like it was great that we had SSRIs or, or whatever we have but now we know more and so you know we know better we have to do better and we really have to focus on some of these other aspects I mean I see it with my patients, with my family, with my friends, particularly with young people. And it, it's not a literature I know as well as my GI, my gut literature, but I'm interested in the study, so I tend to look at them when they come out of the associations between depression and suicidal ideation and all of these things with a very strong correlation with what a lot of these young people are eating. Mm. And so, again, not suggesting that you can, you know, make somebody not suicidal by telling them not to eat Pop-Tarts, but there definitely is an influence, and we see it. And where I see it the most strongly, so people talk about GI symptoms like constipation and bloating and so on, but I'm talking about actual ulceration in the colon autoimmune disease melting away with dietary change and and I think that's as close as we see to magic you know happening in the body and so that is what really makes me such a believer is taking care of these patients with complex autoimmune diseases some of whom still need some medication but many of whom can get off these you know very very aggressive immunosuppressive drugs that have complex and undesirable side effects by changing the diet. And every time I see it, it is just, it, it just, it, like, it, it makes me tingly. I never get tired of seeing that when somebody comes in. I mean, when somebody comes in and they say, guess what, doc, I'm pooping better. I'm excited too. But when somebody comes in and they're now in remission and they're off of prednisone or their biologic by changing how they eat, it is,
1: it's incredible. It is just the best feeling to be a part of that. Yeah, I think that I think it is cool to be proud of that. To be able to say, "Hey, I have made lifestyle changes. I've made eating changes. I've made fitness changes that have allowed me to get rid of four out of five of the medications that I was on." I mean, I think that's something that all of us should strive for to the extent that we're medicated at present. And and I think you're right. I I I never, you know, because I. I've actually pre- kept pretty private sort of my idea on the microbiome. I'm you know, i happy to share now on, on the, with all the people who are listening to this. I don't shower as much. I am that family member oh, who sister. gets the text messages from my cousins and my aunt and my mom. You're dirty. You smell. I'm like, I don't care. I haven't gotten sick in four years. <laughs> so I'd rather, you know, smell a little bit after my run. And, you know, the only person who needs to deal with me is usually my husband or my dog. So... <laughs> Luckily I don't leave the house very much. I work from home, so I that's fine by me if that's the price I have to pay for, you know, going years and years and years without even getting a sniffle. That's that's, that's so the nice. price that I will gladly pay and but you know, I think uh, this this issue of just even Going to your doctor and and pressing them about whether I should take this vaccine or whether I should, you know, take this drug, especially if it's one they're saying I need to take indefinitely for the rest of my life, those things they make me very, very nervous, and sometimes I get worried that people are going to think that I'm anti-medication, or I'm anti-drugs, or I'm anti-vaccine, and to be clear, I'm anti-pharma. I'm anti the industry that is incentivizing this sort of overabundance of you know, prescriptions, if you will. I, I, that, that makes me concerned. And sort of at the cost of nutrition, and quite frankly, of the agency and empowerment of us you know as individuals as people you know we are people we should be able to choose the, the foods that we put into our body and allow that to heal us before we say well i'm just going to listen to what you're saying i couldn't agree more and you know we don't say that
0: doctors who are sort of really aggressive prescribers we don't say well they're anti food right <laughs> we don't, you don't know, but like aren't you aren't you pro food why aren't you talking to me about food we don't label them that way because we accept that as a norm and it's also, I just, it's not the training, you know, you have to, it's like going to the hairstylist and asking for a pedicure. Well, you probably, maybe you can get the pedicure at the hairstylist, but you know what I mean? Like, that's not what they do. Yeah. So you have to recognize that. Like people complain to me, well, I went to my doctor and they just wanted to give me a drug. And they didn't talk to me about that. I'm like, but that's, that's not what they do. Yeah. You know that that's not what they do. And so we have to seek it out elsewhere. And, you know, there's a lot of criticism of people who are not medical people giving health advice and so on. But, uh, for example, I think you're in a great position to talk about health. You are remarkably healthy. You Uh, live a remarkably healthy lifestyle. And you're not trying to treat anybody's disease, but you're saying, you know what? I think that this lifestyle that I live is really healthy. It works for me, and there's lots of data out there, scientific data. You're not saying, "Hey, let me treat your rheumatoid arthritis with a plant-based <laughs> diet." And so, it you know, we need to recognize that we have this common goal of we want people to be well, mm. and doctors do particular things, and they do those particular things really well. When I fell off the horse and tore three ligaments in my ankle. I was really happy to see the orthopedic surgeon and get it immobilized and this is what you need and blah, blah, Really, well, I'm not trying to fix that with eating a salad, I know that, you know. (laughs) Let's be clear. But I also know that if I'm trying to prevent heart disease, I know that what I eat is more important than taking a statin, fundamentally that eating a diet where I'm eating lots of plants, even if I'm eating some animal protein here and there, and and how I control my cholesterol levels based on what I eat is fundamentally a more successful strategy than taking a pill. But here's the thing, it's harder. Yeah, It's hard. And this is the thing that I want to remind people. It is hard. There's no hack. It's really hard. And it's helpful to have a coach and advocate somewhere, you know, somebody along the line who's saying, you can do this, and here's how to do it. And so I think all these people who are sort of in the health conversation are important. I'm skeptical of the ones who are always trying to sell you something, the ones, the influencers who have, and here's a supplement, and it's gonna cure everything. But, you know, I remind people, Serena Williams arguably knows how to hit a tennis ball. Serena Williams has a tennis coach. So even the people at the top of their game have coaches. Because coaching is not just giving people information. It is really helping people with implementation. Mm. And, And that's what we really need. I know there's so many people out there who struggle and want to change their diet and have trouble because it's a habit and they just don't know how to get out of it. And I don't think physicians are necessarily in the best position to help people with those sorts of things. You know, I think this is where nutritionists and health coaches and quite frankly, influencers like yourself who... Or like, you know, I
1: did it and this is how you can do it are a really vital part of the conversation. Mm. I wanted to spend like the next five minutes just asking you like my data dump of questions (laughs) that I have been holding in my head for six years. I was like, these are all the questions that I'm going to ask Dr. Chuckin when I get to talk to her. And they're fairly random. So I know a lot of podcast episodes that, you know, they do like, I'm just going to ask you 10 questions and just answer the first thing that comes to your mind. I'm actually gonna disclaim this section for you on your behalf. This is not medical advice to anyone in specific. I understand that many times the cogent answer will be, well, that depends, right. but <laughs> ask, your <doctor. laughs> yeah, ask your doctor, consult your physician. This is not meant to replace any of that. But I did wanna get sort of like your you know, first thought that comes to mind to some of this. The first one is Ozempic. What are your thoughts on that? creating a pathological state by slowing down the
0: emptying of the GI tract. We call that gastroparesis. This is a state that people with severe diabetes develop. It is a condition that we struggle to treat this is not something we want to be inducing with a drug, in addition to the effects on the pancreas, a risk for thyroid cancer, et cetera. I had a long conversation with a fellow physician at the gym about this, and he was like, Well, it's just clearly the answer, Ozempic. It it's just we should all be on it. And That's again, terrifying. Like, I, it's terrifying to me. as an OBGYN. Like most pharmaceuticals like this that are novel and innovative, there's definitely a patient population who is going to benefit from Ozempic. That's a very small patient population and so again i have to remind people nothing is free and there are some really significant we're not just talking about rare side effects like oh if a drug can cause cancer we're talking about how the drug works how it induces satiety Mm. and what it's doing to the gi tract so not a fan say thumbs
1: down on that one okay i love hearing that what about mouthwash (laughs) <laughs> this one came from the Roll yeah. podcast ever since then I have been very leery of mouthwash I you don't want to kill off those microbes
0: mm-hmm. so I-, I will say I'm a avid and probably compulsive brusher and flosser everywhere I go. In the back of my phone case, if you take off the case, there's dental floss in there. So that even if all I have with me (laughs) is my phone, I'm going to floss. So flossing, okay. Mouthwash. Well, here's the thing. If you are flossing and brushing, you don't even have to use a lot of toothpaste. You're removing a lot of those Mm -hmm. food particles that are getting, you know, that are decaying and being metabolized by bacteria and can give you a little bit of bad breath. So maybe just better flossing and brushing (laughs) and that can help but mouthwash again is destroying a lot of the bacterial community in your mouth so it's really not a good idea if you want to just rinse with a little water or something that's fine but Mm. mouthwash is not a mouthwash is kind of like hand sanitizer
1: okay so that was my next one hand sanitizer especially the kind that they're constantly pushing on you at the airport or on the airplane
0: Granted, we are coming out of a global pandemic. There was definitely a role for hand sanitizer, but it was a limited role because most of these hand sanitizers are antibacterial. SARS-CoV-2 is a virus. So again, we're using these antibacterial cleansers to try and kill a virus. So most of them weren't effective. But again, we're dealing with, for some of them, a lot of chemicals and you're putting this on your hand and then you're eating food and ingesting it. So my answer is I'd rather take my chances with the dirt But global pandemic, you know, all rules are suspended. By all means, do what you need to do to make sure you're getting rid of viruses. If you wash your hands with a little bit of warm water and soap and rub in between the fingers for about as long as it takes to sing a verse or two of Happy Birthday, you're doing a much more effective job of dislodging virus from your hands than you are with a hand sanitizer.
1: Sanitizer. I did want to ask, though, what impact, if at all, do you think that us using hand sanitizers and other sorts of antibacterial chemicals and soaps on our bodies and basically everywhere, I mean, literally everywhere for three years around the world. What sort of impact could that have on individuals' anti, or, uh, individuals' microbiome, their immune system, and all of the sort of domino effects that you've described during our time here?
0: Well, we saw a huge increase in the amount of eczema ah. that people were having. And a lot of that eczema is an autoimmune condition with lots of different causes. But being exposed to a lot of these substances... The stress also was probably a role for a lot of people, but so lots more eczema, which is really a sign of disruption of the skin microbiome. And, you know, we also, it's hard to separate out the role of the hand sanitizers from also the fact that we were inside, Mm. which also has a profound negative impact on our microbiome because we need exposure to dirt and trees and soil and so on. People were drinking a lot more. I mean, there were so many things about the pandemic beyond the hand sanitizer that were potentially deleterious. So I don't know that it's possible to really parse each of those out, but I will say we saw a lot more eczema globally. Mm. And I think that did directly
1: correlate with the hand sanitizer. That's interesting. How often should a person shower
0: This is one of those where I'm going to say it depends (laughs) (laughs) until somebody they love tells them, like, you really don't smell that good. (laughs) It really, here's the thing. You can rinse. And I like to be, particularly if the weather's cold, I like to get in some hot water Mm. because it feels good. But it's really the soap. And keep in mind, too, the water is heavily chlorinated. So, for example, I don't wash my hair a lot because there's so much chlorine in the water. My hair gets really dirty my sister's appalled she like every time she works out which is daily mm-hmm. she washes her hair but i'm fine with sweaty head and trying to avoid the chlorine impact so if you are feeling really funky really dirty and you want to bathe go ahead and bathe but you don't have to slather the soap from head to toe so think about you know onto the arms and in the groin maybe the bottom of your feet if you've been walking around barefoot mm. those bits but the soap all over your skin I dare say that you know your calves are probably not dirty (laughs) (laughs) Um, or like you
1: know your forearm
0: elbow (laughs) or yeah probably not right so Mm -hmm. I think it's fine to you know if you feel like you want to be refreshed but to be really careful with these products with the sodium lauryl sulfate and all the different things especially the more something suds the more deleterious it seems to be to that really delicate microbiome on our
1: hair and skin and So one of the kind of alternatives to sudsing, if you will, soaping, if you will, has been exfoliation. And that's actually the way in Korea how we cleaned ourselves, we wouldn't actually use soap, we would just exfoliate. And to sometimes a painful degree. But now I've even started questioning, well, what if by exfoliating all the skin? And I don't know if you've seen the really funny videos of people visiting a Korean bathhouse and getting exfoliated within I've an inch of my spa life. World? Okay, yeah, okay. So I've you been know exfoliated. Oh I yeah. Mean, but you know, that's like a once a month thing at yeah. most. In a lot of Korean households they do this every single day. Is that is that helpful to the microbiome? Is it harmful to the I microbiome? Know, that would be a really interesting study to do. I Because I've Googled it many <laughs> yeah. times because I've wanted to, but I'm like, oh, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I'm ripping away my microbiome. Yeah, and, uh, and I don't know, you know, it's really, I worry more
0: about the chemical manipulation with the chemicals on it than I think, you know, the Scraping it thing. off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, but I have been exfoliated within an inch of my life at Spa <laughs> World. I loved it, actually. It feels but, amazing. Yeah, I'm not trying to do that every day. every day. And, you know, they get up in there and there's no modesty but i'm very immodest so it's fine but they're like parting you oh and, yeah
1: immodest yeah. <laughs> is is perfect to describe it what about sunblock yeah. again that chemical disruption i mean because we hear a lot you know, gotta wear your sunblock you gotta wear your sunblock is there some problem that we're seeing now with its interaction with the microbiome i really struggle with sunblock and i have lots
0: of conversations with my derm friends who I really respect Mm. about this. But I, you know, when something, if you think about when your skin is dry, you put some lotion on it, and then an hour later, it's dry again. Like, where did the lotion go? Well, it got absorbed in through your skin. So our skin is also a digestive organ. And I like to think of the skin as kind of the outside of the digestive tract. And we often excrete stuff out. Like, even if you've had really spicy food, your sweat smells different, right? So you excrete stuff From your gut, you know, in the top and out the bottom, but you also excrete through your skin and you absorb through your skin. And so I'm really particular about what I'm putting on my skin. And I have some sensitivities. I've had eczema, I don't have it not active. I've been able to get rid of it through my diet. And I have rosacea, which I've also been able to get rid of through my diet. And so I'm very sensitive about putting stuff on that Mm -hmm. can irritate it at the same time i understand that you know there's risk of melanoma and aging skin and sun damage and all of that so my answer to sunblock which my derm friends who again i love and admire and respect will be so angry at this but for me personally i'm not a dermatologist i'm not giving derm advice i wear a hat Uh i try and block the sun physically more when we were on this crazy trip riding across iceland on horseback there was lots of you know there were glaciers and the sun was very bright and i did wear some sunblock on that trip because i was out in the sun mm. seven or eight hours a day and as soon as we got back to where we're staying i would like wipe it all off but <laughs> <it> all, all <laughs> off yeah so i'm not a habitual wear of sunblock i run a lot on the trails where it's shaded i have a big hat i look crazy running in my big brimmed <laughs> hat but I try to do more physical blocking Because when you think about it, I mean, I'm struck by this. It will rain here, and there'll be water on the table outside. And then the sun will come out, and 10 minutes later, the water will be gone. Oh, gone. The sun is really powerful. The idea that just putting a cream on is somehow... <laughs> <laughs> the sun is blocked. I'm like, really? <laughs> just this little zinc oxide has blocked the sun? I'm not sure. So I prefer a physical you know, a big hat. i You'll never catch me on the beach just basking in the sun. I'm always going to be under mm. the umbrella, under a tree. I'm always looking for shade.
1: Yeah. Well, that certainly makes sense. I know a lot of people are fans of the little umbrellas as well as the hats kind of all over the world. But I feel like... <laughs> You know, if you go on TikTok, that's every third TikTok for me. Put on sunblock. is the first thing you put on when you wake up.
0: And, and I want to say it again. I'm not a dermatologist. I'm not
1: giving anybody derm advice. I'm just saying what I
0: do because I've had rosacea and mm. eczema and other things that I've worked really hard to get under control. And I worry about the sunblock irritating them. I don't sure. put a, a lot of things on my face. Like, same with a lot of cosmetics. But certainly, skin cancer is real.
1: And people need to follow the advice of their medical professional for how to prevent that. Uh, One final sort of quick question. You've mentioned that a couple of times that there's probably a little bit more dirt on your food than I guess most people would be comfortable. And I've recently started kind of incorporating that particularly because, you know, there's always like B12, blah, 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 you're not getting enough nutrients as a plant-based, you know, person. I'm like, fine, I'll just literally scoop dirt onto my mushrooms, you know. And I was cooking with a bunch of chefs the other day, and they took such care to remove every particle of dirt from the mushrooms that they were grilling. And I'm like, really? You're not serving this to customers. It's just us here. Like, I'm not going to die from a little bit of dirt. How careful should consumers be, you know, when they're just feeding themselves, you know, feeding their kids about, about, removing every speck and particle of dirt from their strawberries or their mushrooms or their kale. People are so worried about foodborne illnesses, but all of these E. coli outbreaks, et cetera, they
0: always occur in the plants where they're washing the pre-washed vegetables and where they're processing meat. So, you know, this is, nobody's getting E. coli from the farmer's market, locally grown stuff. That is never where these outbreaks, are happening in these industrial places. And so I try and buy most of my food from the farmer's market. I like to support the small farmers. It tastes better, it lasts longer in the fridge. It's more nutritionally and microbially robust. And I personally don't do a lot of washing. Now, if I'm cooking it, it's fine because there's no need to wash a vegetable that you're about to boil Boil. or broil or steam. Mm -hmm. The heat is gonna take care of that. But I'm, again, sort of like the hand sanitizer. I'm more concerned about the chemicals on the food than I am the dirt. Mm -hmm. So if I'm getting something from the supermarket, And I don't know, you know, they wax a lot of the fruit to preserve the freshness. They wash stuff in different chemicals. I might rinse it to get off the chemicals, but really never to get off the dirt. Mm -hmm. Is the dirt good for you? Absolutely. Because where do we get our microbes after that, you know, fateful passage through the birth canal when we're born? Mm -hmm. If we're lucky enough to be born vaginally, we get them from the soil. That's where we get them. And so you want food that is grown in microbially rich soil, so ideally not industrial or organic, but actually grown in soil. And, you know, I'm not suggesting people go out and, like, shovel in dirt into their mouth.
1: That <laughs> <laughs> would be really funny. Yeah, I don't
0: think we need to eat dirt. But I had this... I had this whole thing about the dirt cure when I was really struggling with my eczema and rosacea. And I did go out into Rock Creek and I tried to find some place where there wasn't any dog poo. I'm like, where would the dogs not be able to get to? Scrambled up a rock. And I was rubbing dirt on myself. (laughs) And then at one point, my husband was really keen on getting a swimming pool. And I was like, absolutely not. The chlorine, it's going to kill all my microbes. And then I was trying to convince him we should get a mud pit. Yeah. Like We could farm like really good soil. You know, we could compost it and make it like the richest soil, and then we could get in it. And he was he was not having it.
1: <laughs> he was like, I want the exact opposite a pool. of that. <laughs> yeah.
0: So I see a lot of ex-swimmers with a lot of gut problems, and I think a lot of it is from swallowing the heavily chlorinated water. Because, you know, when you're swimming, you're sw- I mean, they can be swallowing liters of water, some of these swimmers who are training in the morning, and the afternoon, and there's not a lot written about it, but it's a definite phenomena with swimmers and gut problems. And I think my theory is it is the the swallowing of the highly, because when you're swimming in a pool, like a commercial pool at a school, I mean, that stuff is so chlorinated. Mm. And, and so yes, swallowing that water. So I'm always more concerned about the chemicals
1: and the bacteria. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I have one final question. So At the very beginning, you had mentioned that the one takeaway that you want is for people to understand that the food that we eat plays the largest role in our health and our wellness. And you've mentioned this a couple of times, that what we want for everyone is for people to feel well, to be well. How would you define being well? It's definitely not just the absence of
0: disease. It is how we feel mentally, it's our outlook. Do we feel optimistic? Do we feel happy? And that's sort of a diffuse feeling. And I think a big part of it is, do we feel empowered? Mm. Do we feel like we have it within our control to influence what's going to happen to us? And, and that's the thing that I'm most passionate about. I mean, yes, bad things can fall out of the sky and happen to us, and that does happen. But we have so much control over our health, our physical health, our mental health, maybe not our financial health in the same way, but we can create optimism in ourselves. We can create more flexibility, more vitality in our bodies through our diet, through exercise, through community, through getting outside. And I I want people to understand that, that that is real. That's science. You think about Shinrin-yoku, forest bathing, and the studies from Japan showing that it lowers blood pressure and it decreases your risk of heart disease. We also know about the outdoor air factor and improved healing, better prognosis, much lower mortality during the Spanish flu epidemic for people who recovered outside versus inside. So these things are all real. Most of them don't cost a lot to do. You know, it can be expensive to eat more fresh fruits and vegetables, but for most people, they, do, they are able to access that in some small way. So that's what I want people to to know and to feel empowered that they are actually in control of their health, so much of it, and that there's so many things that they can do to feel better and to feel
1: healthy. Mm. Well, that's beautiful. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to share with the community that we have here? There are lots
0: of reasons to not eat animals. And I think the most compelling one is just thinking about how animals are treated in our industrial agricultural complex, which is really heartbreaking Mm -hmm. and morally and ethically wrong in every single way. But I also know that a lot of people struggle because whether they feel like they don't have access and they have to eat meat, whatever it is. And I want people to know that You can be healthier by making these small changes. And even if you're, I'm not 100% plant-based and even if you are not ready to give up meat completely, just eating less meat and more plants can make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And so I want people to feel like, eating plants is an open and welcome community. It's not about labels and, oh, you had some honey, <laughs> like you can't talk to me. And and just dipping your toe in and eating, you know, a little more vegetables and then a little more and then a little more. And just as we talked about how losing just 10% of your weight can make such a difference health-wise and this ripple effect eating 10% more vegetables. You know, Dan Harris talks about 10% happier. I say 10% more plants. So I want people to feel welcome and to know that from a health point of view, it can have a profound effect, even if you're, you, know, you haven't made it all the way there. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that's beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Chuckin, for having us. I could talk to you for a very much longer time. <laughs> We've already taken up so much of your time. I have so many of your questions, but thank you so much. You know, if, if it isn't already clear, your work has had a massive effect wow. on my life. and And it's literally so, it's a very proud moment indeed for me to hear from you that you think that I'm healthy and that I'm living a healthy life because so much of that is been informed by your work directly informed wow. by your well, work you're
0: you're glowing i mean oh. the skin the <laughs> hair the teeth let me tell
1: you people unshowered unwashed hair <laughs> well thank you very much for your time thank you so much and for such the beautiful a beautiful meal that you provided oh. to us yes no pressure cooking i'm for waiting you. for the cookbook
0: <laughs> all right such a pleasure meeting you thank you so much.
1: So I could have gone on for at least another hour with just those random questions that I have essentially been holding in my head for years and years and years. I can't even tell you what a dream it was to sit down with the writer of a book that had such an incredible impact on my life, like literally at the granular level when it comes to what I eat, how often I shower, what products I bring into my home. These are all things that Dr. Chuckin had a direct influence on. So to get a chance to sit down with her and ask her all these random questions was pretty much a dream come true. Let me know in the comments if you had other random questions about the microbiome, the gut, and even the things that we bring into our daily lives or expose ourselves to, and what impact that can have on not just our microbiome, but our health and wellness, as Dr. Chukin describes. Anyways, guys, thanks so much for joining me for another episode of Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. If you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor. Hit that subscribe button below if you haven't already. Leave a comment and a rating. Tell me what you liked. Tell me what you didn't like. And most importantly, tell me who you want to hear from next. If you really enjoyed this episode, it would mean so much to me if you shared this with your friends, your colleagues, your family, your loved ones or even on social media. Otherwise, until next week, I hope you have a wonderful and lovely day.